freedom song, freedom song. I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go. Black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. And welcome to the Ferguson Response Network Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Mack, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my awesome co-host, Ricky L. Hines II. What's going on, Ricky? Nothing much. Um, Join this whole blackness thing. Shit's kind of nice. Yeah, it is good. Being black is good. Uh, what does DeRay say? I love I love my blackness and yours. So, yes, that's definitely true. Uh, this is your first time joining us. Welcome to it. This is actually episode 25 of our show. It's a weekly, well, not weekly anymore, but it's a podcast devoted to supporting citizens working to create lasting change through sustained civil disobedience and civic action. And if you are unfamiliar with my co-host, uh, Ricky is a Los Angeles native, U.S. Navy veteran, avid Googler, blogger, founder of the Americans United Again movement. And he hosts two other podcasts. He's hosted the Americans United Again podcast. Oh, three. And co-host of the AUA Hope podcast and the Social Justice Bullies podcast. His newest uh, added to his array of podcasts that he's on, which is awesome. I've really been enjoying that show, which is fantastic. And um, Me and William are assholes. You guys are so good. It's so great. I love it. Um, you can find this show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just search Ferguson Response Network. And you can also find it on our website, fergusonresponse.org. And you can also uh, check us out on the AUA um, app, which you can get in the Google Play Store or on any Android device. And if you're looking for actions in your area or you want to listen to action that you're planning, you can go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com and you can leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or even send us an email at info at fergusonresponse.org. Now, we are going to be joined by a cadre of amazing black women a little later in the show to have a discussion about black girls and education and talk about our own experiences as black girls in school. Uh, but before we do that, Ricky and I wanted to talk a little bit about some news that we um, have been kind of going through and dealing with. So the first thing I want to talk to you about, have you heard a lot about this uh, Black Lives Matter organization um, demand really for a Black Lives Matter focused presidential debate for the, uh, for the Democratic Party? Yeah, I have. I think it's really interesting as far as um, trying to have that conversation. Mm. I'm going to be honest when I am when I say that if that conversation does happen, we're going to be really fucking disappointed in what's said in it. Um, but it needs to be heard, honestly. Like, you know, it, it really does need to be heard. People need to say this shit out loud. Yes. The, the, the shining accomplishment of 
Black Lives Matter is it has reminded people how racist this country still is. Right. And I also think like it's important to get shit on the record. Like my thing is like you can't hold people accountable to shit you don't even force them to say. So I'm all for like getting these people together and making them actually commit to things or at least say their stance on things where they have never been forced to say them before. So for me, I think that there's a lot of power in that, whether it comes to pass or not. I don't think that's the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to make known what, what our issues are to force these folks that have historically counted on the black vote to go for them no matter what without doing a goddamn thing especially Mm -hmm. in the election cycle um and i think that this is a good you know step towards at least having some sort of ability to have accountability and knowing where where things stand with these um candidates so uh there is a um, the just to give everyone kind of a quick timeline, uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization, sent a demand to uh, the DNC asking for a Black Lives Matter specific debate. Um, and they also created a petition um, that everybody is able to sign. I think there are over like 35,000 people have signed it thus far, um, mm-hmm. asking and urging them to have a specific Black Lives Matter themed presidential debate. I'll, I'll quote from the petition itself. It says it is not enough to poll the presidential candidates and whether or not they think Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. We deserve substantive responses, including and in addition to criminal justice reform. What will the presidential candidates do to ensure that black lives matter? We deserve substance and not rhetoric. In fact, we demand it. Call, uh, Join the call for a Black Lives Matter pre- presidential debate. Focus on the issues important to our community. Um, so there were some responses that they received. Always like to, that's always good. So the DNC did respond, and I'll give a quick read of theirs. Um, all, this is from Amy K. Dacey uh, from the DNC. <clears throat> Thank you all for your letter. Obviously, uh, this request was sent with a, um, a letter to them. Uh, we are thrilled to hear about your interest in, a de- in the Democratic nas- nomination process, and we appreciate your commitment to a progressive agenda that will continue to move this country forward. Just like in 2004 and 2008, the DNC plans to sanction six debates and is facilitating a fair, structured, and reasonable process for and on behalf of all our candidates so they can present their case to the American people. But that is not the only way they'll make their case, giving your organization's grassroots membership and its commitment to progressive values, including an end to institutionalized racism. We believe that your organization would be ideal, an ideal host for a presidential candidate forum where all the Democratic candidates can showcase their ideas and policy positions that will expand opportunity for all, strengthening the middle class and access and address racism in America. If you choose to organize an event, uh, we will. We at the DNC would be happy to promote the event. We appreciate you taking the time to contact us. We look forward to working with you should you decide to move ahead with a candidate forum. So, yeah. Can I call bullshit on something? Go ahead. So, they called the end to institutional racism yeah. a, a progressive value. Yeah. Which, there's no question that it is, but can we be honest... And also say that that values within the value system is very high up on the fucking list. No. And I don't think that means just because <laughs> it's a progressive value, I don't believe that means it's a democratic one. Because I no. think that we need to be uh, real clear on that part of it, too, that, that those two things don't don't necessarily coincide all the time. Yeah. And I mean, people like to say, oh, well, you know, um, the, the democratic 
party is the progressive party, the liberal party. Yes, but that's because the Republican Party is fucking crazy. Yep. Like you're going to look pretty liberal no matter how how far right you go. And really the Democratic Party as, a, as an institution stands center-right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, sure. A center-right, a center-right president, a center-right country will kind of want to get rid of racism. But they don't give a f- – they don't care enough to, to really put any substantive action behind it. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the concern. Is you and you go back to progressivism during the New Deal, right? Arguably one of the greatest progressive eras of you know our country's history, mm-hmm. and it's very explicit in the congressional records that the the first people they were they were going to leave out was black people. The next the next person the next set of people they were going to try to exclude with with policy was women. Like. Mm-hmm. You, I, I'm not lying. If I'm lying, please somebody go look this shit. No, up. you're not lying. I see no. Day. I see no lies. <laughs> I see no lies. Um, like, yeah. So uh, the Black Lives Matter organization, of course, they're continuing to push for uh, an actual um, debate, and they did issue a statement. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's kind of long. They they did a press release in response to the DNC's response, but I'll read this one piece, which I thought was really cool. Um, they said. Um, on August 28, 2015, the DNC unanimously passed a resolution in support of Black Lives Matter. We were told that the DNC heard the cry of the co-founders that black lives do indeed matter and that it empathized with the broken hearts of a generation, quote, who feel totally dismissed and unheard as they are crushed between unlawful street violence and unjust police violence, end quote. We were told that the DNC would continue, would join us in, quote, making visible the pain of our fellow and sister Americans as they condemn extrajudicial killings of unarmed African-American men, women, and children, end quote. We want to see that support, not in resolutions, but in actions, asking whether Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter is a far cry from making visible the pain of our communities and leads us to a logical conclusion that the DNC now needs to do the hard work to ensure that Black Lives Matter in our country and around the world. It is not enough to say Black Lives Matter on a presidential debate stage, absent a black presidential contender or political perspective, we want tangible responses. We deserve better. The DNC has an opportunity to provide a public forum for presidential hopefuls to address the multiple crises impacting our communities. If we are to take seriously the resolution passed in our favor, the DNC must also take seriously the urgency of our demands. So, yeah. Uh-huh. I love that because totally just turned their words against them with that bullshit ass resolution they passed. The thing that got me about their response, though, was to me, it just seemed like more of this like, yeah, we who have all the resources and all the money and all the possible connections that would be necessary to do anything in the world we want, expect you, the black people, to do all the heavy lifting and hard work. You host something. We'll promote it, but you do all the work. You find a venue. You get sponsorship. You figure out how to pay for it. You put it all together, and then we'll just tell people about it. It's such bullshit. Yeah, yeah. and I could. You know what? You you want to you want us to put it together? Cool. Run that money. Run that check. Exactly. Like we get it. Yeah. Donations. Democratic donations. Donations as a part of um, compared to what Republicans raise, 
like they're starving comparatively. Yeah, comparatively, um, but in reality, it's still but a compared shit ton of money. To, but compared to the constituency that you're asking to pay for something mm-hmm. and the rest of the country, you're not. <laughs> you can put forth this money. This money is an investment in a constituency, is it not? Mm hmm. So if you won't invest in a constituency, why do you expect them to continuously inv- like invest their votes in you? Mm. Why? Because the other fucking party's crazy? We've been through crazy. Exactly. We deal with crazy every fucking day. All day, every day. I, you know, you have to try harder. Do better. Do good, better. Good, good, foot in the, good step in the right direction. Positive step in the right direction. Thank you for that. But do better yeah and i think it's just still to me it's like just i don't think that the i actually don't think white folks generally speaking and i definitely don't think that uh the the political cycle has caught up to the shift that has happened in our community in our activist community our organizer community and just we're fucking done we are fucking done and i don't think that they get that yet like you can you can hear the response thanks for being interested in the democratic process bitch fuck you and us being interested in the democratic process. Are you kidding me right now? Like, that's condescending as fuck, number one. Number two, uh, we probably know more about the democratic process than you do at this point. Because guess what? We're actually trying to use it to get fucking free. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. Mm-mm. Uh, so, I'm interested to see what develops from this. I've heard some rumblings about a Twitter um, town hall with the presidential candidates so that'll that would be interesting to see what develops from there um oh god oh god i black know twitter black is twitter presidential mm, candidates oh god that might be something to hop on twitter for yeah uh yeah i know because you're never there so you might just that might that might bring you over for a couple hours maybe <laughs> um oh so my. yeah it would be interesting so unfortunately um another uh black person was killed um in st louis county near ferguson missouri yesterday uh what was shot yesterday killed uh, and died this morning as a result of the gunshot wounds um and uh Ar- armandrez p green from florissant missouri uh was died this morning of uh, his gunshot wounds he's 18 years old he was 18 years old at the time of his death now i'm gonna just say because i was actually like really on twitter when all of this went down when the shooting happened there's several videos that have come out of the shooting itself um and a few people reaction videos as well and i'll tell you that in the first two hours of this incident occurring there were four let me just tell you that Four different statements that were completely different from one another from police officials on the scene. Four in two hours of one incident. Then they held a press conference and a fifth story of what occurred came out as well. They, the police claim uh, that he killed himself and that they, while they did exchange fire, they were not the ones that, that actually hit the individual. Now, eyewitnesses are... Uh, saying that that's not true at all. They're saying that uh, the teen ran and that he was killed. He was at, I'm quoting the witness now, he was right at eye level as the officer shot him. It was not a suicide at all, end quote. 
the video um, is there, says um, Dominique Clinton, who uh, also witnessed it. She says, while he was running, he turned around to face the police, and that's when they shot him in the face. I saw his body drop. They shot him in the face. His whole right side of his face was gone. His top lip was gone, end quote. In the video of the scene that Clemens reposted on Twitter, a gunshot can be heard, as well as a man yelling, don't shoot me and don't kill me. Oh, God. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, this is, um, this is business as usual for them. I, you know, it's one of those things, it's, it's fucking unfortunate. It really, it, it hurts because that could have been anyone. Um, but this is, this is what, this is a reminder. Hey, fight's not over. It's not even close to over. No, we have a long way. And and also, I think it, it's a, another reminder about, you know, when we talk about Ground Zero in this movement, we talk about St. Louis County, we talk about Ferguson, you know, we are talking about an area that has seen consistent protests, even through this entire time that people are doing lots of other things. And we have seen uh, a police force and, uh, you know, criminal justice system that continues to uh, be do all the things that they were told not to do by the Department of Justice and and has not changed any of its practices whatsoever. So the fight is extremely real in in St. Louis, in Missouri. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this this incident just calls to light those things that, that not much has changed there. Um, yeah. So. yeah. And they haven't changed because the incentives for them doing the actions have not changed. Mm-hmm. We don't disincentivize a, an, an officer pulling their gun and killing someone at all. So when it happens in a black community um, run by white people, right? most literally, um, <laughs> why would they care? Yep. You know, we, and that's, that, that's the underlying issue is that these things are incentivized. It's not so much, oh, well, this person wants to kill a Negro. He's racist. No, he's put in a position where, where off, off from the moment that – the interaction begins. If he kills him, odds are he's going to be okay. Like he's going to he's going to get away with it anyway. Yep. So Absolutely. you've given him that that option. Not hey, you need to make sure that this person is actually threatening the lives of others or your life before you kill them. No, you know what? If you feel in fear, not you know, sh- shoot him. Why? Yeah. That. Fear of what, though? That's my question. Yeah, I mean, like, how are you in fear for your life against someone running away from you? It doesn't even make (laughs) any sense. Yeah, I mean, it never does, especially even with the story changing five times. It's not so much that, like, police narratives change all the fucking time. But when the final narrative completely ignores the witness... The, the the witness statements completely like this the the two are the two are mutually exclusive. <laughs> like, mm. So either the witness the witnesses are lying or the people who've changed their story are lying five times, or well the people who've changed their story five times are lying. If we're gonna play the odds on this, who the fuck is it? If somebody was changed their story telling you telling you what happened, and there's two you know everybody says there's two sides to a story. I don't really agree with that, but. Okay, so this side has been lying, has has told five different stories. Yeah. This side has been consistent in what the fuck they've said. Pretty much. Who the fuck is generally lying? 
nine times out of ten, unless it has to do with authority, people are going to say, oh, well, you know, the person who changed the story five times. Of course, that's common sense, right, bro? No. Oh, well, the people who changed the story were police. You get that, right? Oh, well, you know, uh, investigations take time, and they put out information to the public when they don't fully... Shut the fuck up. No, they don't. <laughs> Shut up. You're not even being genuine. Yeah, you're not. It's it's all bullshit. Um, so, obviously, you know, rest in peace. Um, I want to make sure I say his name right. Our Amandrez, um Green, and uh, condolences to his family and, um, yeah. you, know, you know, to his community and... Hoping that um, we continue. And I mean, I, I think this is another thing. It's like, you know, the, these families are not not content to just stay quiet. They're not content to not say anything. And, you know, his family, his father's been very vocal already the last day. Um, and I, I did read that the um, eyewitness is being interviewed because I guess there's a continuing investigation. Mm-hmm. But I just, this, this general... Um, shall we say disregard of the truth i don't even yeah. like i don't even know what else yeah. to call it except for that it just is crazy to me that they still think and i mean really they do get away with it but um i don't know they're don't so know. bad at trying they're to get away so, with they're it, just though. terrible at it because they've never they haven't had to be good at it because nobody gives a fuck it's like this yeah. we're gonna talk about in a minute it's like this this uh cop in south carolina that assaulted this girl in her class when the whole school and all the students call him officer slam of course he's gonna fucking do whatever the fuck he wants to do. He's yeah, never they been, all knew it. They knew it. He was hired to do that shit. We're gonna get into that in a minute. In fact, let's pause here. We'll be right back and we'll uh we'll get into assault at Spring Valley High and uh talk with some of these ladies about their experiences as black girls in education. We'll be right back. Close. 
right, and we are back. Uh, as I said, we have um, a trio of wonderful uh, black women with us to discuss uh, the incident at Spring Valley and also our own personal experiences um, in education as black girls and black young women. Uh, first up, we have uh, Jamie Broadnox, who is the black girl nerd herself. She's a founder of the online community Black Girl Nerds in 2014. Jamie was accredited by MSNBC, thegrios.com, top 100 list for being an online community builder in the tech space and innovator for black women to feel comfortable with embracing their nerdiness in the September 2014 issue of Marie Claire magazine. Jamie was recognized by TV powerhouse Shonda Rhimes as one of her favorites to follow on Twitter. She was also acknowledged by AT&T's The Bridge as one of four black techies to follow on Twitter. She has traveled all over the country making appearances at various comic cons and has made a TV appearance on the Melissa Harris Perry show. And we welcome her to the Ferguson response network podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Jamie, and taking some time to talk with us about this issue. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Um, next we have Hestinson, who is a human rights advocate, co-creator of R A I S E raised an online family of activists. She's a sweet potato enthusiast and a mother of two and has welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And we also have Asa, who's listening in, and I'm working to get her microphone fixed, um, who um, is uh, market research industry, is in the market research industry and a mental health advocate in her free time. And hopefully she'll be able to join us in a little bit. But I wanted to just start with um, at least a general conversation and people's first responses and, and reactions to um, the assault at Spring Valley High. Um, I unfortunately myself... Um, and actually, uh, Hass, if you could, I'm so sorry. That's okay. If you could, up here. yeah, if you could mute yourself until, until you're talking, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I unfortunately was, I would say forced, but I, I saw the video, um, unexpectedly. I usually don't watch these things, but when it appeared on my timeline, it, it started playing and I didn't have a choice but to see it. And I don't know if anybody else had that experience, but this was one of those ones that it, popped up and it was already playing before I even knew what was going on. Um, and I personally had an immediate visceral response to it on a number of levels. Uh, one, obviously the, the violence of it, but I was immediately drawn to the other students in the class and kind of looking at their reactions and how they were kind of experiencing it as well. Uh, Jamie, what were, what were your first thoughts? I don't know if you've seen the video or not. I don't want to assume. Yeah, I saw uh, some folks tweeting it on Twitter, and I did see trigger warnings. Um, when the videos that would autoplay came on, I immediately just scrolled past it. I didn't want to watch the video. Mm -hmm. um, and then I finally broke down and watched it and in its entirety, and it was, it was very disturbing. Um, one of the things I noticed that happened on Twitter, however, with respect to the other students um, a lot of people were giving them flack for not responding, mm -hmm. and I thought that that was a bit of an inappropriate um, knee-jerk reaction to how those kids should react in that situation. I mean, nobody knows what they're going to do when something like that happens, and my guess is that the kids were um, non-responsive because they were stone-cold in fear. Um, you know, this day and age, when we see all of these stories with what's been happening with Mike Brown and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland and Rakia Boyd and so many black people that are getting killed by the police, the last thing I would ever want to do is come up to an armed police officer as a person of color. 
Um, so I, I honestly thought that that was the appropriate response to just be frozen in fear um, and just be in shock of what was happening right before their eyes. Yeah, to me, I thought it was like I could see shock and it's a trauma just watching something like that. So I, I can only imagine that there is a, a portion of, you know, traumatic um, response to that, which often presents itself as, you know, non-responsive. And, and then there's also another layer of the idea that this is not something out of the ordinary for them to witness, right. which adds a whole other layer of trauma to it, which is them being desensitized to this level of violence, which is even more disturbing. I, I actually didn't think any of their responses were, um, surprising at all to me um it just really struck me it wasn't to me it would have been uh surprising for them to react like oh my god i can't believe this is happening that would have mm-hmm. been uh, unusual to me so i really felt for them in those moments for sure um ricky how about you did you watch the video i don't know if you did see it or not um i did i kind of i kind of stumbled across it too uh, to be quite honest. And mm-hmm. then um, it's just growing up in a high school that had cops um, and it like none of their actions really did surprise me. Um, the kids themselves. Mm-hmm. What bothered me the most was like the what appeared to be a teacher, the minute the, the adult in the fucking room. First of all, that you needed to call a student resource officer when um that's not even how you deal with a problematic child. If somebody, if a kid's being problematic in school, then you lead everybody else out the room <laughs> and deal with it. You don't, there's just so much, like, and you deal with them yourself. Like, she didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything illegal. Um, he had no fucking business in that room in the first place. Right. That, like, that is the problem. And then when you factor in the, the, the context behind what was going on, like, it's just, it's like you're not even allowed to grieve as a black person. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Or that, fe- that, or struck out, that stood out to me or the most. Or feel even, or feel even, you know, we don't get to have emotion. Um, Hess, let me throw it over to you and just get your first responses to the video and the incident and kind of the fallout as well. It was, I avoided it, to be honest with you, uh, for as much as I possibly could. And when I first played it, I actually stopped it after the first like 10 seconds because I couldn't take it. I was really focused on her and her body. And it just, it just seemed like it came out of nowhere for her. I'm sure she wasn't expecting that if she was just going to sit there and, you know, kind of be defiant as teenagers are, that he would react that way. Mm. And it just her body, like, it just, like, it looked like she was in so much shock because she barely moved. It was everything, all her movements were pretty much him throwing her, him pushing her on the floor, him throwing her towards the front of the class. And it was really sad. And as Jamie said, the children, uh, the one young boy kind of panned to show his face a good deal. He was so scared. You could definitely see it. It wasn't any source of cowardice. It was just, you know, he would have probably been the next one to get beat up. And it was just really sad to see children being afraid in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's not even a situation where someone's shooting up the school, being afraid of someone they see every day who's supposed to protect them. Mm. Yeah, and it was very methodical as well, you know, where he closed her her um, computer and, like, moved it to the side because that was something of value 
that he wasn't willing to break but her arm was okay to break because that's that's uh that has been confirmed by her lawyer her arm is broken in the incident um it's it's just baffling to me just to see the entire scene play out the way that it did um did they ever figure out why the teacher felt the need to bring in law enforcement to the classroom to get this um student out did we ever go over that yet no, I don't think that they've gotten to the bottom of it. I mean, the original first they said it was for chewing gum, um, and then um, it was because she wouldn't put her phone down. And then the reason why anybody was called outside of the teacher was because she refused to leave the classroom. So her refusal to leave the classroom is what prompted um, the administrator to be called and then the police officer to be called to them. She didn't want to leave the room. So it was just her wanting to stay in the classroom. So that's kind of dis- disturbing on a whole other level of her wanting to stay in class is what led to this incident in the first place. Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy to me that you would use law enforcement as a means to escort a child out of a classroom. Um, I mean, it just, it blows my mind. that This person has a weapon. This person is capable of killing another human being and just because the student is, you know, exercising their right to say, no, I'm, I'm not leaving the class, that you're going to use this kind of excessive force by bringing in an officer. Um, it, it just blows my mind. And I'm just curious to know where this teacher's head was at when they decided to make that call. Yeah. And that actually brings us to kind of the next part of the conversation, which is we've seen report after report over the last six or seven months talking about uh, the way black girls are treated in our educational system. Uh, One report that came out was called Pushed Out, Overpoliced and Underprotected, spoke specifically about the ways in which blackness and black girls are uh, overpoliced in our educational systems, much more so than their black counterparts or black boys when compared to their white counterparts um which is i I say surprising i'm actually not surprised by the statistic but i'm surprised because of the um focus on black girls uh black boys that we see in responses to the prison the school to prison pipeline and all of the things that we've seen you know from my brother's keeper to all of these things that we see programs that we see put forth to address these things they never get to the heart of the issues that um our our girls face in schools um, just to give a few stats that, that came up from this, that uh, black girls were suspended six times more than white girls um, nationally. And while black boys were only suspended three times as often as, as white boys. Uh, there's some specific data from New York City and Boston. In New York City, uh, they, they, this was over an entire school year. Uh, black girls were involved in disciplinary cases 10 times more than their white counterparts, uh, with black boys being six times more than their white counterparts, despite there only being twice as many black students as white in Boston. The number of disciplinary cases involving black girls were 11 times more than those of their white counterparts. Um, so we see over and over again, the statistics show that, when we couple blackness with our um, gender, we see, you know, catastrophic responses from the state. And that includes our education system, um, which, uh, you know, I, 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 again, not surprised at all. We see this all the time. It, it goes back to so many tropes we all have to deal with, you know, being the angry black woman, being um 
sassy being considered loud when we are just exerting ourselves as full human beings in in most spaces generally speaking um two things that stood out to me from the one report also was that in new york city over the school year it was the 2011 2012 school year uh black students made up about 28 percent of the student body black girls were 90 percent of all girls expelled and zero let me say that again zero white girls were expelled during the same school year wow in boston public schools black students made up about 35 percent of the student body white 14 percent black girls made up 63 percent of all girls expelled and again in that same case zero white girls were expelled that school year from the public school system in boston um So we are definitely talking about this intersection of race and gender and how it's playing out in our girls. And we saw that um, lamentably right on video um, in this incident in Sweet Valley, which the name of the Mm -hmm. school, the town even gets to me Um, because it just all I think about is blonde twins when I hear those two words together. So it's weird. Mm. Um, (laughs) It's just weird. Um, So, uh, in hearing those statistics, like what comes to your mind, Jamie, and like how do you see uh, these things manifesting themselves the, through the educational system and, and how they affect uh, the ability of our girls to transcend these, these, you know, insurmountable in some cases or seemingly insurmountable odds? Well, you know, um, I was actually, oddly enough, I was working on an editorial right before we went to air. And uh, Monique Jones, she's a contributing writer on Black Girl Nerds, and she wrote this really great essay about um, Sleepy Hollow Mm. and the relationship between Abby Mills and Ichabod Crane. Um, And I just wanted to read an excerpt from her um, essay because it's very um, pertinent to our discussion. Uh, She writes that uh, Hurston writes, in their eyes were watching God, that the black woman has had to deal with the discrimination from and the burden of both the hierarchy of the white man and the black man being victimized twice over for being a woman and being black. Hmm. The black man may have been black, but at least he was still a man, right? To a certain extent, the idea of being a strong black woman has always been a play in America since slavery, since the black woman has had to endure the horrors of slavery and sexual assault from the master. Somehow raise children in spite of her own tribulations be a wife to her husband, and deal with the jealousy and discrimination of the master's wife. The black woman has always had to handle it all and still keep it together when she just wanted to fall apart and be helped. Hmm. Um, So, I mean, it it, it just, it's gut-wrenching because, you know, we do have to work as hard or twice as hard as everyone else. Um, You know, we are fighting against patriarchy. We are fighting against racism. Um, and even in the context of having these solidarity movements like Black Lives Matter, we're still noticing disparities when it comes to gender. We're mm-hmm. still seeing the guys' names mentioned and not mm-hmm. many of the women. I think there's been 19 homicides this year of black women that have been killed by officers. But you don't hear about that. Um, and that's why those movements like Say Her Name was so important. Um, and then they even had... Um, I think they had like um, marches and meetings uh, for various women that have been killed, but it certainly paled in comparison to a lot of the movements that were, um, you know, for a lot of the male names like Mike Brown and um, Eric Garner that got 
tons of nationwide attention. Um, and then people fail to recognize the fact that Black Lives Matter was a movement created by three black queer women. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So I just I, I think that it's important that, you know, us as people of color and us as um, black people, that we really need to focus on um, having some gender equality within our race and and really focusing on the needs of both women um, as well as men that are um, largely marginalized. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And has mm-hmm. um, how, how did you how do you see these? statistics, you know, playing themselves out in, in real world situations. I, I feel like whenever a black woman is stepping outside of the Manny role, being in the background or being the support, whenever she's stepping outside to be a leader or to express her humanity, she's always kind of pushed back upon. I feel like the statistics for school, uh, girls in school, like how dare you show your humanity? How dare you show you're angry or you're frustrated or you're having a tough day? You're not allowed to, you know, be human like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. So you go back and I'm going to punish you until you understand that you know your role. That's how I feel about those statistics. I feel like young students are going to be punished for being students. And school as we know it, you sit in school and you're just there for eight hours a day. Most of the time you're sitting, you have you know, no windows, no sunlight. It's barely a healthy situation for many students um, as it is already. But whenever black girls say, you know, have an issue or express kind of discontent, it's like you don't really get a say. Like, I feel like it's just more methods to silence us mm. and more methods to punish us for not being silent. Absolutely. And we see these things playing out as early as kindergarten. Um, Asa, I, I think your mic's working now. Maybe? Uh, can you hear me now? Woohoo! You're yes. on. Awesome. Yes. Welcome. Okay. Um, Great. I'm sure you were sitting there like, I have stuff to say. <laughs> 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 so oh, wow. I'll, I'll leave you the floor just to kind of comment on the few things we've already been speaking about. Uh, yeah. So what I'm, the thing that hits me the most is black kids, no matter the age, aren't allowed to express normal developmental behavior Mm. everything from early stages like the the um terrible twos you have to beat that out of them they're just misbehaving but white kids get that freedom to move about do what they want and get disciplined in less uh violent ways Mm -hmm. and then once Mm -hmm. you get older and you're in these teenage years this is a time where you're supposed to be defined. You're supposed to ask questions of authority figures, but we're not allowed that, that growth, that ability to grow and to have a sense of self and to grow and have autonomy. And it's basically it, the fear stunts our growth. Ooh, does. That's heavy and very true. Um, and, and we saw a lot of that in, the responses, even from black folks to this situation where, you know, mm-hmm. oh, she should have been compliant. She shouldn't have been talking back. She shouldn't have, she shouldn't have, she shouldn't have. Uh, I mean, I was disturbed at the number of times I read that phrase over and over again with regard to this young girl who was completely brutalized for no reason whatsoever. And we see mm-hmm. these dualities uh, and hypocrisies play out so often, whether we're talking about, you know, the pumpkin spice riot or, um, you know, last week, uh, Michigan state lost and, you know, all, all hell broke loose. And 
these are situations that are deemed as mischief and, um, you know, letting off steam by the media and by the powers that be. But um, actual frustration from black folks of real situations that they're dealing with is is completely unlawful and unacceptable and needs to be criminalized and, and c- clamped down upon. So, you know, we see that for sure. And I was I was just mentioning that the situation um happens as early as kindergarten, these zero tolerance uh, policies that, that affect so many mm-hmm. young girls that are in school where th- they'll get suspended at six years old for like poking someone with a eraser as an example, not even joking. That's, that's a real thing that happened. Um, so you'll see that these zero tolerance policies that are used, uh, you know, because most of these behaviors are subjective and so when we have subjective meet racial disparity, you always have black women and girls coming out on the short end of the stick. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know what else to say about it in that regard. Ricky, what were you going to say? Um, I was actually going to touch on something that Asa touched on. So she set me up quite nicely. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, no, but <laughs> this goes back to the way that we raise children, right? So we know that the way that we raise um, girls and boys is systemically different. And what what normally ends up happening is that girls are punished much more frequently than boys are, and boys are usually punished more harshly. Mm -hmm. Um, When you you inject that into a school system that we know and we know is kind of more beneficial to – um, to girls because boys at that age are usually a little bit more hyperactive. Te- teachers understand this, so they're, but they apply it in such a fucked up and racist manner, in the sense that okay, when a girl acts out, it's so much more worse because it's not they're not they're not allowed feelings. They're not allowed to have any form of fucking emotion while they're in school. They're supposed to sit there, learn, and shut the fuck up. Mm. Boys can get away with it because, yeah, like, school structure really isn't for boys. It just, for most boys, it, it just isn't. Um, um, so, I, I you know, we'll this. give them a little leeway. We'll give, you know, he's just acting out because he's bored. He gets, he, the boy gets the benefit of the doubt. Really, school isn't beneficial for either girls or boys in the way that we do it for structurally different reasons. For girls, it doesn't allow them any emotional outlet while in school. Because, again, this type of shit happens. Like, so, if I'm seeing this, and I know, as a kid, I have student resource officers at my school that, and it's no secret that they've been a little rough. How do you think, what, what, what is a reasoned reaction to that? Uh, maybe, maybe I should bottle my emotions a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes toxic. Right. And we expect people to just carry this shit on and deal with it. It don't work that way. Right. And um, from my experience, there is there is alternatives to police officers in the school, calling Mm -hmm. them resource officers and whatnot, because I did live that reality in school. I was one of the defiant kids in public school. They didn't know what to do with me. So our school district also partners with a private school, which is tech, 
labeled an alternative school for problem kids with behavior issues. And I've noticed throughout the time I was at that school, after I graduated, talking to social workers who advocate for kids and to get into that school, we've all realized that calling the police was a last resort. Mm. There's always behind every bad behavior in young kids, there's something behind it. There's something that's causing it. And in public schools, when you have 30 kids to one teacher, the teacher doesn't want to, you know, ask questions, have a sit down conversation with that kid, go to lunch with it, have lunch with them or anything like that. It's I have to get all of this material into these kids so they can pass these tests. I don't have time to focus on these one or two bad apples. I just want them out of the class Mm. as opposed to having the funding to have more teachers in smaller classrooms and counselors in the school that are Mm. trained to handle the the emotional development of teenagers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw a story on Twitter that I retweeted and I don't know all the full details. Um, so I'm paraphrasing, but basically this teacher, um, had a student in her class that was not being compliant and they had a cell phone. She told them to put the cell phone away and they would not do it. Um, rather than doing what the teacher in Spring Valley did, uh, cause this was after what had happened with Spring Valley. She became very cognizant of the situation she um, decided to approach him and ask him why and just take five minutes of his time and try to figure out what's going on. As it turned out, he had a family member that passed away the other day. So he was going through a lot of emotional turmoil, and that's why he wanted to hold on to that phone. So I think it's really important that teachers um, have some sort of sensitivity training when it comes to dealing with students and not just making assumptions that they're just being bad or that they're just being disrespectful. Um, Like Asa said, a lot of these students have issues that are happening at home that they're carrying with them at school each and every day. They're dealing with a lot of emotional baggage. Um, So everybody acts out in different ways. Mm. Some people are very, you know, some people get into fights. Some people are very withdrawn and, You know, they just isolate themselves. And I I have a feeling that's what happened with this girl, that she was just isolating herself and she just did not want to um, comply with what the teacher was asking her to do. Um, So I think it's really important that that teachers acknowledge that and just take a few minutes to, you know, try to probe and find out what's going on with this child because it could be a situation where a family member passed away. It could be a situation Mm -hmm. where there's abuse going on in the home. And, And situations like this can be prevented. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, one other thing I noted too, as I saw this other report that came out talking about um, the difference between black girls and black boys assimilating into um, desegregated environments. So going into a mostly white institutions, private school or a different um, type of environment and that black girls have a much more difficult tra- time transitioning into those environments versus their, um, the, the black boys in these same situations because all the um, 
the, you know, gregarious, outgoing um, personalities of the black boys are seen as positives in this social environment. And those same qualities in black girls is seen as loud or obnoxious or too much for the environment. And so you see them not even being accepted in the same ways, despite their behavior being very similar. Um, and again, it goes back to what Jamie was saying before, which is this double tax of being female and being um, black black when you're in an environment that, you know, doesn't really want you there at all. Um, so I wanted to, to flip the conversation a little bit. Regan Gomez um, started a really amazing conversation on Twitter after this incident. She started with a very simple tweet. She said, we know black girls are suspended at six times the rate of white girls, black women. How was your experience in school? I'll read a few comments of people. Uh, Fanny at Fanny G187 said, Half, um, uh, she's one of two. I went to a predominantly black schools until sixth grade, seventh grade, a white boy called me a nigger and tried to spit on me. I grabbed his hair and slammed his head against a brick wall repeatedly, broke his nose. I got suspended. He got expelled. Uh, melanated beauty says I was suspended from school in the fourth grade after a teacher hit me and I ran out of the classroom and hid for hours. Not Folu says, my mom was told I had a learning disability elementary school. She fought to have me tested. Scores showed I was gifted. Amanda Seal said, told third grade teacher I wanted to be the first black president, female president of the United States. She wrote a note home that I was overconfident. Mm. Wow. Miss Need says, I always got accused of cheating. I was the only black in, in my class when I scored highest on class slash homework, which was often. Miss Gunn said, I was always getting in trouble for, quote, challenging authority, a.k.a. asking questions and, and outsmarting teachers. And finally, um, Nay Queen Cole says, my mom couldn't finish my box braids, so I wore a scarf on top of my head. I was forced to take it off in front of everyone, and I cried. Um, so we see a lot of different re reaction, you know, responses there. Some academic, some um, laden in cultural, you know, issues. Some specific to um, social issues. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, what what were your experiences like in school, Jamie? What kind of schools did you go to? And did you have any instances where you realized that your treatment was specific, be specifically because you were a black girl in school? Uh, yeah. As I'm listening to you read those stories, it, it definitely reminds me of a situation that I, um, encountered. This was later in my years. This was in college. Um, when I was in graduate school, I went to film school at Regent University, and at the time, the uh, dean of the School of Communications, where I got my degree, uh, was a TV producer, the famed uh, television producer, Peter Engel. He uh, created the series Saved by the Bell. Yeah. Uh, so he produced a show called, I've never told this story, so you're getting the exclusive here. Ooh, um, <laughs> I was actually going to write a blog post on Black Girl Nerds about this experience. Um, he... Uh, created a series called Last Comic Standing. You may be familiar with that show. Mm -hmm. uh, and he recruited uh, several students from the school to work as production assistants. And these two white students happened to be in my classroom at the time. And uh, they got a chance to go out to L.A. and work with the crew. And I was really excited about 
getting the opportunity. Um, so I just decided to take a step out on faith and walk into his office and just point blank ask him, I would like to be a production assistant on Last Comic Standing. I think I have the credentials. Um, I'm excelling in all of my courses. I really would like to have a shot. And his words were, and I quote, I don't know you. Mm. And I just was taken aback wow. because I, I didn't know you had to have a personal relationship with your dean in order to get an internship um, working on a television show. But wow. apparently with this, with this guy, that was the case. So I just remember going home that day and just crying my eyes out and thinking, I, I'm never going to be what the other kids in class are, are being able to succeed at. I mean, I, I went to a predominantly white school. So there, were, there, there weren't that many black faces, and um, so many of them were able to excel in their careers, and they had um, utilized their privilege in a lot of ways. There was a lot of nepotism going on, so the dean knew the um, the dean was friends with some of the professors that happened to be siblings of some of the students, and it was just a lot of that going on. So they were able to um, get a lot of opportunities that um, I couldn't, and... Um, you know, unfortunately, that that's something that's been very pervasive in my life, um, even after college, <laughs> mm. even into my adulthood and, and working in um, corporate America. But, um, you know, what what rejection for me is, is what's allowed me to be in the space that I'm at today. Um, so, you know, I even though it was a really bad experience and um, I, I hate that that happened to me and I would have loved to have had an opportunity to work in the film industry and the TV industry. Um, I, I'm glad for the experience because then it allows me to see that I can grow and create something on my own and, and be successful at it and love it and enjoy it and harness it and, uh, you know, and not have to fall into the craziness of, of Hollywood and all of that. So, um, mm. but yeah, that, that, that had happened to me when I was in graduate school. Absolutely. Um, how about you, Asa? Um, well, I went to pretty much all predominantly white schools from, yeah, kindergarten through college. And I noticed when I was younger, elementary school, um, I was put into a gifted and talented program. But on the flip side of what a lot of people experienced where they were discouraged and told they weren't good enough, I was always made to be the aspiration where I was pointed out when other kids weren't doing as well and it usually happened to be other black kids in the class weren't doing as well and it was my test scores up and my reports up and talked about and they were made the examples and that created a lot of animosity between me and other black kids in the school mm. so I never had I was never able to build connections with other black kids in school because I have teachers alienated us. Mm. Um, and then going into middle school, I developed um, bipolar disorder and they couldn't figure it out. And that's when I became very defiant. I, my grades started to drop and they didn't take the time to, you know, see that, yes, this isn't normal because, She's been in gifted classes from second grade to fifth grade. Why is sixth grade all of a sudden she's dropping off? Mm. But I was put into 
a remedial class, which made me withdraw more. And luckily, my parents were able to be very involved and have me tested, have me get an IEP put in place. And even with all of that, the schools weren't very accommodating to it. Mm. So it was either um, stay in public school, be in a remedial class and not be working up to my ability or go to a private school. And I went to a private school. I lasted a month because the the socioeconomic differences were too great. And I was basically the fly in the bowl of milk. Mm. And I was completely uncomfortable. So I got lucky. My parents found out about the alternative school and I got into there. It was still very predominantly white, but it was smaller and the teachers were trained to deal with with adolescents, not just kids with behavioral problems, but adolescents in general. Mm. Um, it wasn't this, you have to conform to this, these robotic standards of obedience. You can, you can blurt stuff out in class. You know, that's what kids do. You're going to ask questions. You're going to say why, why, why all of the time. And this wasn't something that phased teachers because they didn't take it as a an attack on their authority, which a lot of teachers I've noticed do take kids, especially black kids, asking questions and saying these rules don't make sense. Why are they in place? They take it as an attack on their authority and jump the gun like this teacher in South Carolina. Mm. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I had recalled when I replied to Regan, she retweeted um, a story I really quickly told about. I remember being really interested in biology. I was in a biology class, my first biology class in middle school. And we went on this field trip to see like whale watching, if I recall correctly. And I was so interested in it and was asking like a ton of questions. Whenever the tour guy would say, does anybody have any questions? I actually had questions. And uh, about halfway through the day, my teacher pulled me aside and literally said to me, I think that's enough with the questions now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, I literally, it completely turned me off of not just biology, but just science in general from there forward. I was like, oh, that's not for me because you can't ask questions there. Or I should say, I can't ask questions there. So I just stopped even being interested in it. And <clears throat> And then I was uh, also in mind, I I recently interviewed, I went to an all-girls boarding school um, in upstate New York, one of these college prep, you know, schools for high school. And I had the opportunity to interview a bunch of black alumna recently, uh, going back to the 1970s all the way through around 2010 or so. Uh, I interviewed about 10 10 alumna over that time period that graduated in a very wide berth of, of time. And it was shocking to hear the stories that they each told me, same stories, um, administration and, and teachers pressuring them. Why are all of you black students sitting together? Mm-hmm. Um, why are you so loud? Stifling our blackness at every turn. Um, and also being told directly, you know, I know you see these white students doing X, Y, Z, but if you do that, you're going to get kicked out. Um, and this general 
general knowledge that we were there for a purpose. That purpose was to give these white students exposure to other people. And that was our function. And we were lucky to have that job there in that environment. So I remember that, you know, knowledge, you know, going through this, this process of, and the other thing that, that the, each of the girls relayed to me was that they, they thought they had these really amazing white girlfriends. They'd been together since they were 13, living in the same dorm rooms, being roommates. And then as soon as college acceptances started coming around, it was like night and day, you know, where you hear the phrase, oh, of course you got in there. Well, yeah. you got in because you were black. And it was so startling to these young women at 17, 16, 17, 18 years old to hear these people they trusted and loved say these things to them because you can't help but realize, oh, this is what you thought of me this whole time. I had fooled myself into thinking that we were equal because I thought we were, but clearly you didn't. Um, so I, and I know that's been, that's an experience of lots of black girls who are overachievers or are in, um, you know, that the fly in the milk, uh, as Asa referred to it, have those same experiences. Has I'm going to, I'm going to turn to you and just have you lift up some of your experiences as a, a black girl student. So unfortunately I've experienced a lot of what you all have experienced, not only being the defiant child, but being the exceptional black child as well. Um, <laughs> Uh, it flip-flopped like that and it was interesting but my experience is as a black girl who lost her mom um, in the school system there really is a lack of empathy for black children who are bereaving their parents Mm. there's a lot more empathy for white children whose goldfish has died last week (laughs) that's how bad it is that's how bad the difference is Um, I remember in elementary school it was a lot of, infant, you know, they infantized me a lot and they put a lot of stereotypes towards me. Like when I lived or when I went there, um, I believe my grandparents after my mother was killed. They were middle class. They lived in a mostly white neighborhood, um, except for one other black family. And it was, you know, it was an expensive home. And when I go to school, they assume I'm poor. You know, they one of the teachers actually signed me up for free and reduced lunch without my grandparents or my dad's knowledge. <laughs> um, and it was funny because they rather assume that I'm poor that than that I was hurting or that I was sad. They didn't give any support or encouragement. I really felt like at the time my story and the things that I was going through was more like a teacher's lounge toddler and some type of spectacle. Oh, I, you know, that's something they can go home and say, oh, I have a sad black girl whose mom has died in my class. But they didn't treat me like they cared. You know, it was kind of like suck it up buttercup once the classroom got on. And it was just really unfortunate that that happened. And when it, when I got to middle school, um, towards the end of middle school, because the beginning was rough too, um, I was the exceptional student. I was writing well. I was doing well. And so there was a lot of exceptionalism and, you know, oh, look at Hess. Oh, my, bad then I was Latrice. Look at Latrice. Her work was great. You know, this is what she wrote, blah, 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 blah. And it really separated me once again from the little bit of black students that were in um, middle school. I was not cool enough at all. And that didn't help. Um, just all in all, I really feel that the services for kids who are grieving, for black children who are grieving, there is none. Mm. There absolutely is none. The guidance counselor and, that I had, 
she wanted to talk about more so what it's like being the only black kid in a white neighborhood as opposed to trying to adjust without a mom and you're seeing all these other moms come in or trying to adjust living in, you know, in a different home. At that point in my life, you know, race really was a secondary factor for me trying to adjust to this new um, world that I was in. And so I just, my like last thoughts are that they don't really help black girls adjust when they have you know, great moments um, or very sad events that happen in their lives. They just kind of expect you to move on and get along and we don't really want to hear about you unless it's to, you know, give us a little bit of drama in our life. Mm. Uh, Ricky, as, as a lone male here, I'm curious if you notice any of these same kinds of stories or experiences in, in girls you went to school with. Um. Yeah, not and not just that, but I have four sisters. Oh so, yeah, so you know. Um, yeah, and all like all of them had varying school experience uh, ex- experiences, but they all kind of revolve around that theme of just not being able to be themselves in school, not being able to to have a moment of weakness, not being you know even appreciated in class like I had um my younger sister or one of my younger sisters should have a lot of sisters um she I think it was fourth grade year her teacher who was black mind you um went through the entire year mispronouncing her name Mm. like it was a like it got to the point where like after about two or three weeks, and my sister being like really annoyed with it, it became a joke to us all. Mm. Um, because that's traditionally how my family deals with problems. We just we joke them away, and so had, like just the little bit of respect that like you can't pronounce Lad Ladmiral like really. <laughs> it only t- three times maybe, and I'm terrible with names. Shouldn't take me more more than three times. Ladmeralt. See how easy that is? And, it, you know, there was just so much. It's just like I could tell that there was a different school experience, um, but I couldn't tell just how because a lot of this shit that the black girls went through in school just as a function of um, – the, the ones I went to school with being uh, more intelligent, a little bit smarter than most of the people I was in class with, like, we started suffering from the same fucking problems where we were afraid to say or answer a fucking question because we both don't want to be look like, looked at as nerds. Well, you know, that doesn't necessarily bother me as much because I hung around with thugs. Like, I could hold my own. Like, no one – my safety isn't at risk because someone thinks that I'm, you know, a nerd. Right. Her safety is. Right. Her safety, you know, is at risk pretty much throughout the day just for the simple fact that she's a woman or, right. you know, a, a young woman. Right. It's it, – I don't know. It's 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 difficult to to kind of wrap your head around as a black male because you, you see some – you see a lot of the common themes within – what happened but you don't it, it's really difficult to factor in oh yeah on top of all this she also has, she also has to be worried worried about rape she also has to be worried about sexual harassment she also has to be worried about things that as a male generally i just don't have to worry about and never even contextualizing that 
Yes. So I guess um, we we heard some common themes to to the tweets that I read and and the stories that I also read from these reports that have recently come out. And and so I guess that the the next logical question is where do we go from here and what can uh, we do to support black girls um, in in their schooling environments, especially those of us who may not have children, um, but are are making our way in the world and, and have gone through so many of the similar things that they have. Um, are any of you mentors to, to um, young women and, and how have you gotten involved with that if, if you have, or, or have you seen that in action? Uh, Jamie, I'll start with you just kind of talking about some ways we can help combat these things. Yeah, I kind of found out I was a mentor by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to go into this whole mentor world, um, but it shows it, you. It chose me. Yes, indeed. Um, I I had gotten an email from a 12 year old girl, um, who had looked at the site and she had been a fan of blackgirlnerds.com for a long time. And she was just like, thank you, um, for creating this space. And I don't feel alone anymore. Um, and that really just resonated with me because I'm like, oh my gosh, there's people that are, you know, these young impressionable, impressionable youth that's reading this site that's essentially like the next generation Mm -hmm. that I'm sort of um, creating this space for. So um, it's definitely grown bigger than me um, at this point. Um, You know, a lot of the work that I do is really just representation, showing black women in all different forms. You know, we're not a monolith. We're not this very small slice of the pie that you see represented on television, um, specifically speaking, reality TV shows. Um, So I write a lot of commentary about comic books. I I write a lot of commentary about the tech industries, um, science fiction and fantasy, um, cosplay and gaming. Um, A lot of subcultures that are predominantly, um, you know, represented by men um, and, and predominantly represented by white men at that. Um, but because of this space, there are more black women that are interested in um, diving into the waters of cosplay or diving into the waters of comic books. Um, and then there are black women that have been doing this way long before I created the site that are just happy that they finally have a space where they can express themselves and they can meet other women that are doing the same things that they've been passionate about for decades. Um, so really just doing the work that I'm doing every day with, with managing the website, um, having a podcast, talking about very pertinent topics. Um, we're actually having, um, you know, Asa had mentioned that she suffered from bipolar disorder. We're actually having a mental illness um, podcast this Sunday, um, which is actually a part two. We had done one earlier this year and it was actually the most downloaded podcast that we had ever done. Mm. Um, so it, it says a lot that, you know, speaking about marginalized issues, speaking about issues that you don't hear on the mainstream, such as mental illness in the black community is, is very important. And I think that that is definitely a, a bridge to allow young girls and black women um, to feel more confident about themselves, to know that there are safe spaces um, where we see them, um, and that the visibility is there. Uh, so, you know, just keep, keep doing what I'm doing. 
<laughs> awesome, Jamie. And Asa, I know you and I worked on the Women's Freedom Conference together, and I know that yeah. for me, part of the work of doing that was creating a space for women of color to have some voice and to center ourselves and bring our, you know, 360 degree 3D badassery uh, and put it on display. So I'm curious about you as a young woman, you know, how, how do you see um, yourself making some space in the world? Um, well, working on the Women's Freedom Conference actually kind of motivated me to getting back into working with uh, teenagers. So I'm currently trying to get back into one of my old roles, which was a youth partnership leader and, you know, helping um, teenage kids, usually some of them with mental illnesses or behavioral issues um, and a lot of them from low income areas, uh, transition into adulthood, whether it be getting a job right out of school, whether it be going to college, whether it be a trade school, helping them with that transition because I remember how difficult it was for me and I would have loved to have somebody to talk to it about and help me along the way, you know, when I was struggling to fill out college applications, figuring out um, who to get a recommendation letter from and crying my eyes out because I'm like, I'm not going to get it in on time. I would have loved to have somebody that wasn't my mom to talk to. So I want to be that for other young girls. That's awesome. Um, I have three mentees. I'll give them a quick shout out. What's up, Lanise? Hello, Shade. Hi, Naima. To all three of them. Um, and they're wonderful young ladies and I just am lucky enough to you know be in their lives and be that person they call in the middle of the night when some crazy shit goes down and you know read the stuff that they want to submit to things and um, make sure they're aware of opportunities and it's been really rewarding for me and I like Jamie said kind of stumbled into it it was like oh I'm your mentor okay cool uh, kind of thing just because we had been working together on other projects and it's been really rewarding for me and uh, allowed me to kind of, you know, which is a weird way to say it, but kind of uh, mentor myself as a young girl and reconcile the issues I had growing up um, in working with these young women. So it's been extremely rewarding and I would recommend it to others because it's been a good way for me to heal myself um, through the work and, and working with young people. Um, Hess, how about you? What, what, what do you? what do you got going on? Um. You know, mostly I'm at home, but I do interact a lot online with really young girls, high school girls. And I feel like that's also a great avenue to take because you're able to meet girls across the nation or across the world who need some upliftment and support in their lives. And they they might not, their schedule might be different, but they're able to log on when they can and you can still interact in a way. So kind of having access to them to be able to be their personal cheerleader has been really great and kind of have it be flexible where it fits my life and theirs. Um, and regardless of how far or close they are is really wonderful. Absolutely. Um, I know where we're heading uh, to the end of the show here. I want to give everyone a chance to just tell folks where they can find you. Uh, Jamie, we'll start with you. Please let everyone know where they can find all of the black girl nerd fantasticness out there. Uh, so the website is blackgirlnerds.com. And um, in addition to providing editorial content on the site, we also have a podcast 
and that airs every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on TWIB. TWIB is the acronym for This Week in Blackness by Alon James White. Um, also, if you miss the live show, you can download episodes and subscribe to SoundCloud. So it's soundcloud.com forward slash blackgirlnerds. Um, we're all over social media. I tend to rant and rave on Twitter incessantly. <laughs> uh, uh, right now, I'd probably be live tweeting scandal. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook, Tumblr. If you just Google Black Girl Nerds, all of those social media networks come up. And, um, you know, support us if you can. Uh, you know, this is a big machine that I, um, you know, travel with each and every day. And, and I definitely would love your help in any capacity. So uh, if you go to www.zazzle.com forward slash blurredgasm, that's B-L-E-R-D-G-A-S-M, uh, there's merchandise uh, that have all of our swag, T-shirts, coffee mugs, keychains, all that fun stuff. Um, so all of that just helps allow me to produce more content and be able to do meetups and, and travel and, and be able to create this mission of showing black women being represented in the nerd, nerd subculture. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jamie. And has, how, where can everyone find you? Um, I'm one of the co-founders of RAISE, which is Raise, Raising Activists in Solidarity and Equity. Um, we're a community of activists that really want to take a family approach to social justice. Um, also on Twitter at H-E-S-S underscore underscore L-O-V-E as well. And I'm pretty much just retweeting <laughs> every uh, gorgeous gem that everyone else is dropping. Awesome. Asa, where can folks get in touch with you? Um, you can look at my blog. It's really new, but it's at bigkidatthewindow.blogspot.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at Sanity Thief. That's all one word. And that's where you can find me. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, you can find me at Leslie Mac, M-A-C, and you can find Ricky. Occasionally, you can find Ricky on Twitter. He doesn't <laughs> He doesn't really do the Twitters too, too much, and I give him crap about it every show. Uh, but you can find him on Twitter at A-U-A-D-O-T-O-R-G, uh, and you can find him on Facebook very often at facebook.com backslash A-U-A movement and on the website A-U-A movement.org. Again, you can find this show uh, just searching iTunes or Stitcher Radio for Ferguson Response Network, or you go to our website, fergusonresponse.org, or um, you can go to the AUA app. I always say that wrong. The AUA app, which you can find in the Google Play Store or on any Android device. Hopefully, I said that right this time, Ricky. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yay, yeah. I got it right. You awesome. usually get it right, actually. Do I? You get it right more I often always, than I do. I always feel like I get it wrong somehow. Uh, <laughs> and if you have. Uh, actions going on in your area supporting the movement for black lives you can list them at fergusonresponse.tumblr.com and you can also find actions in your area at that same web address I'm going to end with a little gem I found from some young ladies in Los Angeles in 1967 a group of black girls uh, showing some black girl magic Mary had a baby pizza pizza daddy what's his name pizza pizza daddy oh Jesse James pizza pizza daddy oh what's best Let's 
three times. Me? Get somebody who haven't been here. Say you haven't been here. I haven't been here. I haven't been here. I haven't been here. You have been here. Oh, my mother, she died. Hey, let's do all. Let's do all. I haven't been here. I haven't been here. Sonny had a baby. Pizza, pizza, daddy. How you know it? Pizza, pizza, daddy. Cause you call me pizza, pizza, daddy. What's the name? Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you guys next time.